Chapter 5 of The Scalp Hunters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dale Latham. The Scalp Hunters by Thomas Main Reed. Chapter 5 In a Bad Fix. A few days afterwards, another adventure befell me, and I began to think that I was destined to become a hero among the mountain men. A small party of traders, myself among the number, had pushed forward ahead of the caravan. Our object was to arrive at Santa Fe a day or two before the wagons, in order to have everything arranged with the governor for their entrance into that capital. We took the route by the Cimarron. Our road, for a hundred miles or so, lay through a barren desert without game and almost without water. The buffalo had already disappeared and deer were equally scarce. We had to content ourselves with the dried meat which we had brought from the settlements. We were in the deserts of the Artemisia. Now and then we could see a stray antelope bounding away before us, but keeping far out of range. They, too, seemed to be unusually shy. On the third day, after leaving the caravan, as we were riding near the Cimarron, I thought I observed a pronghead disappearing behind a swell in the prairie. My companions were skeptical, and none of them would go with me. So, wheeling out of the trail, I started alone. One of the men, for Goad was behind, kept charge of my dog, as I did not choose to take him with me, lest he might alarm the antelopes. My horse was fresh and willing, and whether successful or not, I knew that I could easily overtake the party by camping time. I struck directly towards the spot where I had seen the object. It appeared to be only half a mile or so from the trail. It proved more distant, a common illusion in the crystal atmosphere of these upland regions. A curiously formed ridge, a couteau de prairies on a small scale, traversed the plain from east to west. A thicket of cactus covered part of its summit. Towards this thicket I directed myself. I dismounted at the bottom of the slope and leading my horse silently among the cacti plants, tied him to one of their branches. I then crept cautiously through the thorny leaves towards the point where I had fancied I had seen the game. To my joy, not one antelope, but a brace of those beautiful animals were quietly grazing beyond, but alas, too far off from the range of my rifle. They were fully three hundred yards distant upon a smooth grassy slope. There was not even a sage bush to cover me should I attempt to approach them. What was to be done? I lay for several minutes thinking over the different tricks known in hunter craft for taking the antelope. Should I imitate their call? Should I hoist my handkerchief and try to lure them up? I saw that they were too shy, for at short intervals they threw up their graceful heads and looked inquiringly around them. I remembered the red blanket on my saddle. I could display this upon the cactus bushes. Perhaps it would attract them. I had no alternative, and was turning to go back for the blanket, when all at once my eye rested upon a clay-colored line running across the prairie beyond where the animals were feeding. It was a break in the surface of the plain, a buffalo road, or a channel of an arroyo, in either case the very cover I wanted, for the animals were not a hundred yards from it and were getting still nearer to it as they fed. Creeping back out of the thicket, 
I ran along the side of the slope towards a point where I had noticed that the ridge was depressed to the prairie level. Here, to my surprise, I found myself on the banks of a broad arroyo, whose water, clear and shallow, ran slowly over a bed of sand and gypsum. The banks were low, not over three feet above the surface of the water, except where the ridge impinged upon the stream. Here there was a high bluff, and hurrying round its base, I entered the channel and commenced wading upward. As I had anticipated, I soon came to a bend where the stream, after running parallel to the ridge, swept round and canyoned through it. At this place I stopped and looked cautiously over the bank. The antelopes had approached within less than a rifle range of the arroyo, but they were yet far above my position. They were still quietly feeding and unconscious of danger. I again bent down and waited on. It was a difficult task proceeding in this way. The bed of the creek was soft and yielding, and I was compelled to tread slowly and silently lest I should alarm the game. But I was cheered in my exertions by the prospect of fresh venison for my supper. After a weary drag of several hundred yards, I came opposite to a small clump of wormwood bushes growing out of the bank. I may be high enough, thought I. These will serve for cover. I raised my body gradually until I could see through the leaves. I was in the right spot. I brought my rifle to a level, sighted for the heart of the buck, and fired. The animal leaped from the ground and fell back, lifeless. I was about to rush forward and secure my prize when I observed the doe. Instead of running off as I had expected, go up to her fallen partner and press her tapering nose to his body. She was not more than twenty yards from me, and I could plainly see that her look was one of inquiry and bewilderment. All at once she seemed to comprehend the fatal truth and throwing back her head commenced uttering the most piteous cries, at the same time running in circles around the body. I stood wavering between two minds. My first impulse had been to reload and kill the doe, but her plaintive voice entered my heart, disarming me of all hostile intentions. Had I dreamt of witnessing this painful spectacle, I should not have left the trail. But the mischief was now done, I have worse than killed her, thought I. It will be better to dispatch her at once. Actuated by these principles of a common, but to her, fatal, humanity, I rested the butt of my rifle and reloaded. With a faltering hand, I again leveled the piece and fired. My nerves were steady enough to do the work. When the smoke floated aside, I could see the little creature bleeding upon the grass, her head resting against the body of her murdered mate. I shouldered my rifle and was about to move forward when, to my astonishment, I found that I was caught by the feet. I was held firmly, as if my legs had been screwed in a vice. I made an effort to extricate myself, another more violent and equally unsuccessful, and with a third, I lost my balance and fell back upon the water. Half suffocated, I regained my upright position, but only to find that I was held as fast as ever. Again, I struggled to free my limbs. I could neither move them backward nor forward, to the right nor to the left, 
and I became sensible that I was gradually going down. Then the fearful truth flashed upon me. I was sinking in a quicksand. A feeling of horror came over me. I renewed my efforts with the energy of desperation. I leaned to one side, then to the other, almost wrenching my knees from their sockets. My feet remained fast as ever. I could not move them an inch. The soft, clinging sand already overtopped my horse-skin boots, wedging them around my ankles so that I was unable to draw them off, and I could feel that I was still sinking, slowly but surely, as though some subterranean monster were leisurely dragging me down. This very thought caused me a fresh thrill of horror, and I called aloud for help. To whom? There was no one within miles of me, no living thing. Yes, the neigh of my horse answered me from the hill, mocking my despair. I bent forward as well as my constrained position would permit, and with frenzied fingers commenced tearing up the sand. I could barely reach the surface, and the little hollow I was able to make filled up almost as soon as it had been formed. A thought occurred to me. My rifle might support me, placed horizontally. I looked around for it. It was not to be seen. It had sunk beneath the sand. Could I throw my body flat and prevent myself from sinking deeper? No. The water was two feet in depth. I should drown at once. This last, last hope left me as soon as formed. I could think of no plan to save myself. I could make no further effort. A strange stupor seized upon me. My very thoughts became paralyzed. I knew that I was going mad. For a moment I was mad. After an interval, my senses returned. I made an effort to rouse my mind from its paralysis in order that I might meet death, which I now believed to be certain, as a man should. I stood erect. My eyes had sunk to the prairie level and rested upon the still-bleeding victims of my cruelty. My heart smote me at the sight. Was I suffering a retribution of God? With humble and penitent thoughts, I turned my face to heaven, almost dreading that some sign of omnipotent anger would scowl upon me from above. But no, the sun was shining as brightly as ever, and the blue canopy of the world was without a cloud. I gazed upward and prayed with an earnestness known only to the hearts of men in positions of peril like mine. As I continued to look up, an object attracted my attention. Against the sky, I distinguished the outlines of a large bird. I knew it to be the obscene bird of the plains, the buzzard vulture. Whence had it come? Who knows? Far beyond the reach of human eye, it had seen or scented the slaughtered antelopes, and on broad, silent wing was now descending to the feast of death. Presently, another, and another, and many others modeled the blue field of the heavens, curving and wheeling silently earthward. Then the foremost swooped down upon the bank, and after gazing around for a moment, flapped off towards its prey. In a few seconds, the prairie was black with filthy birds, which clambered over the dead antelopes, 
and beat their wings against each other while they tore out the eyes of the quarry with their fetid beaks. And now came gaunt wolves, sneaking and hungry, stealing out of the cactus thicket and loping coward-like over the green swells of the prairie. These, after a battle, drove away their vultures and tore up the prey, all while growling and snapping vengefully at each other. Thank heaven, I shall at least be saved from this. I was soon relieved from the sight. My eyes had sunk below the level of the bank. I had looked my last on the fair green earth. I could now see only the clayey walls that contained the river and the water that ran unheeding by me. Once more I fixed my gaze upon the sky and with a prayerful heart endeavored to resign myself to my fate. In spite of my efforts to be calm, the memories of earthly pleasures and friends and home came over me, causing me at intervals to break into wild paroxysms and make fresh, though fruitless, struggles. Again I was attracted by the neighing of my horse. A thought entered my mind, filling me with fresh hopes. Perhaps my horse. I lost not a moment. I raised my voice to its highest pitch and called the animal by name. I knew that he would come at my call. I had tied him but slightly. The cactus limb would snap off. I called again, repeating the words that were well known to him. I listened with a bounding heart. For a moment there was silence. Then I heard the quick sound of his hoofs, as though the animal were rearing and struggling to free himself. Then I could distinguish the stroke of his heels in a measured and regular gallop. Nearer came the sounds, nearer and clearer, until the gallant brute appeared upon the bank above me. There he halted, and, flinging back his tossed mane, uttered a shrill neigh. He was bewildered and looked to every side, snorting loudly. I knew that, having once seen me, he would not stop until he pressed his nose against my cheek, for this was his usual custom. Holding out my hands, I again uttered the magic words. Now glancing downward, he perceived me, and stretching himself, sprang out into the channel. The next moment, I held him by the bridle. There was no time to be lost. I was still going down, and my armpits were fastening the surface of the quicksand. I caught the lariat and, passing it under the saddle girths, fastened it in a tight, firm knot. I then looped the trailing end, making it secure around my body. I had left enough of the rope between the bit ring and the girths to enable me to check and guide the animal in case the drag upon my body should be too painful. All this while the dumb brute seemed to comprehend what I was about. He knew, too, the nature of the ground on which he stood, for during the operation he kept lifting his feet alternately to prevent himself from sinking. My arrangements were at length completed, and with the feeling of terrible anxiety I gave my horse the signal to move forward. Instead of going off with a start, the intelligent animal stepped away slowly, as though he understood my situation. The lariat tightened. I felt my body moving, and the next moment experienced a wild delight, a feeling I cannot describe, as I found myself dragged out of the sand. I sprang to my feet with a shout of joy. I rushed up to my steed, and throwing my arms around his neck, kissed him. 
he answered my embrace with a low whimper and that told me i was understood i looked for my rifle fortunately it had not sunk deeply and i soon found it my boots were behind me but i stayed not to look for them being smitten with the wholesome dread of the place where i had left them it was sundown before i reached camp where i was met by the inquiries of my wandering companions did you come across the goats where's your boots whether have you been hunting or fishing i answered all of these questions by relating my adventures and that night i was again the hero of the campfire End chapter 5 Recording by Dale Latham